0: And if that person was presenting with the same disability and had MS, they would get support, a service, recurrent appointments, and um, the lack of a, a, a label for this condition has resulted in this no neurological diagnosis and therefore no support and no rehabilitation for these patients.
1: That's Dr. Rose Murray, consultant neurologist in Glasgow, talking about why patients with functional neurological disorders seem to get such a rough deal when it comes to services and treatments. Join her, me, and Dr. Jason Price, consultant neuropsychologist, as we tackle the common presentations of functional neurological problems, how to recognise them, how to talk about them, how to think about them, and most importantly, how to treat them. Words of wisdom and a call to arms for better services, better treatments, and better attitudes from neurologists. Uh, Right, so we're talking functional neurology with two people who know a lot more about it than i do actually which is good um and actually that's been the theme of all the podcasts <laughs> and the teaching thus far um so we have dr rose murray uh, in glasgow and we have dr jason price who anybody that works in teesside will know well uh so rose is a consultant neurologist um up in glasgow uh jason is a consultant neuropsychologist and we've worked with each other on and off for years haven't we, we are. um I, I I try and do a little kind of biog typey kind of intro thing, but I feel like Roz, I know you so well. that um, I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> would you, So, uh, you, I mean, obviously, we did our training together, didn't we, in Newcastle? Um, Absolutely. Yes. Uh, where were you yes. before that?
0: So before that, well, I trained in Aberdeen and I worked in Aberdeen for a long time, worked in accident emergency and then did my medical training and finally wound up in um, neurology after ophthalmology and a few other places. And um, then I went and did some stroke research down in Glasgow, then um, spent some time commuting over to Edinburgh doing a lat um, for 10 months or so. And um, that's where I Um, had some interaction with John Stone and um, saw how he worked with Mm. the patients with functional um, symptoms and realized that that really worked for these patients Mm. and that he actually uh, took them seriously um, and investigated and helped them cope with their symptoms and get better Um, and then I got my training number down in Newcastle and was there um, started in Sunderland, Newcastle, and then Middlesbrough for a couple of years. So, lots of places up and down, uh, gradually moving south, and then came back up to, to, to Glasgow um, for my consultant post. Um, so, how
1: long have you been a consultant now, Rose?
0: So, now, um, so I started as a consultant in 2012.
1: Same as 2012. me then. So, you've gone through that first year of kind of excitement, exhilaration, anything is possible. And you have now kind of slid down the slopes of despair.
0: Yes.
1: And theoretically, we should now be beginning to pickaxe, ice axe our way back up the slippy slope.
0: Theoretically. Yeah, I think that's true. (laughs) I think that's exactly how it is. Yeah.
1: All right. And we will come to Jason shortly, but I just wanted to say, I'm remembering this evening, because obviously we were neighbours, Around about the time that um, Hazel and I got married, and we were off on our safari, exciting honeymoon safari, and um, and there was this kind of talk about the Big Five on the safari and all the thing, the big animals you want to see, like lions and the elephants and stuff. And it felt like certainly when I was coming, thinking about neurology as a career, I was thinking parkinson's and ms and epilepsy and these kind of big mnd maybe headache stroke like sort of big neurological things and then like if you're in a big center there's maybe a specialist in neuropathy and there's a specialist in myasthenia and kind of muscle disease no kind of sort of more oh that maybe i'll be forgiven for saying a bit more niche stuff maybe nowhere nowhere on my radar was functional at all
0: absolutely no, that's right. And it was just a, a a bit of a gap. And if I hadn't had that spell in Edinburgh where um I saw how John dealt with these patients, admitted to the, the ward admitted them to the ward, dealt with them, um, helped them manage their symptoms, I think I I, I wouldn't have known what to do. But it made a, a very stark contrast with most other places where I'd worked. and mm. um and after that as well, it was very clear that it was a huge gap um, in the system pretty much everywhere else. And everywhere else, um, these patients didn't have a neurological problem. They had a normal scan and therefore um, there was nothing for a neurologist to do. Um, and that was, that was I remember that being challenging as a trainee mm-hmm. yeah. um, because you do the ward round and the plan was made, discharge. And you had to try and somehow facilitate that and make that OK. Yeah. um for someone who was weeping in a bed unable to walk you know
2: yeah.
0: um really um distressed and very disabled um but the feeling was that it would probably get better um and yet there was no clear view as to how that was going to happen and no real support for patients and so that just seemed wrong um and it's so common fnd functional neurological disorder as we know it now um you know a third of patients in your neurology clinic, a third of treatment-resistant epilepsy in -hmm. the epilepsy clinic. And we see it so commonly um, that we have to have a framework for dealing with it. So what what should
1: we be looking for, Rose? as a kind of functional presentation? What sort of things would you see in a a neurology clinic that would make you think functional?
0: Okay, so um, it has a very heterogeneous Presentation and it um, often um, you will have a story of perhaps some sort of accident, um, a very physical event, maybe, um, followed by um, symptoms affecting one side of the body. You might get sudden onset paralysis, stroke like episodes, um, and it sometimes patients are admitted recurrently with a stroke event for example um scan normal put on the aspirin the statin and then the mri comes back normal and then it happens again um and it's maybe not until the second or third time that people start thinking you know that this isn't stroke let's Mm. refer to neurology um so sudden onset um events that take a while to recover from um it may not be weakness it may be sudden onset Spasms or tremors, um, so hyperkinetic movement episodes. Um, and sometimes that can have a sort of whack a mole appearance where it'll appear in uh, one hand. And I remember as a consultant, one of my first, um, well, very memorable patients um, with FND I met in AE at Glasgow Royal Infirmary in the middle of the night because she was being given um, midazolam for seizures and it was a shaking arm. Mm. Um, and I thought I have to go and see this because it's not settling and I don't know what this is and I really need to see this movement problem and sure enough you know it was a a sort of flapping hand tremor and if and then it would be a side to side hand tremor and if the arm was held still it came out in a leg on the opposite side Mm. and the leg would tremor and if you tried to hold that leg still, sometimes it would worsen in that leg and then it would appear in the opposite leg. And so it was appearing in other places. And this was clearly a functional movement disorder. And being able to give the diagnosis quickly there and then because you're seeing it. And it's maybe not what most neurologists might do, go and look at it there and then at midnight and 80. But you know, um, it really makes a difference to the patient because it, it stops. The medazolam treatment—that's really just causing an addiction, actually—and it's dangerous. Respiratory sh- wild.
1: Yeah, a shocking attention to to, to detail, <laughs> Roz how, d- how dare you? Well, how dare you important. be on call and do it properly? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was um, it was important, and and actually, you know, the the learning outcome from from her situation was that she did really really well. Mm. Um, with you know about ten or twelve sessions of neuropsychology, because there was an early diagnosis um and we helped manage those symptoms and and take on the other triggers after that. Um, but I think it requires that initial, and you you have to be interested enough, I think, to to want to see that. You could do that, you know, via video now if you've got family member that can video the the movement problems, and that can be emailed through to you. So yeah, um, movement disorders, sudden onset paralysis, um, not infrequently. Um, Facial weakness um, mm-hmm. or atosis, um, mm-hmm. where you can see that it's variable and there's sort of voluntary muscle activity, and it doesn't look like a a, a standard facial paralysis. Um, so, yeah, uh, those those are the sorts of presentations I would see most commonly, I okay. suppose, along with, yeah. of course, non-epileptic attacks is the other yeah. big one.
1: Okay, yeah, and I, we will talk. I suppose they're a sort of case almost on their own. Merits. Yeah. so kind of maybe we would yeah. focus on those in a slightly different way but i think there's seems that i see a lot of sensory stuff as well i don't know if you do kind of hemisensory things and so on and half and um yeah
0: i think the more you ask and um with Johnstone's approach of asking about all the symptoms starting with the presenting symptoms and then going down a symptom list to get all the information out there at the start the more you ask, well, often I see an awful lot of pain. Yes, there might be numbness and tingling. There's often an awful lot of um, intractable pain. It might start with, I suppose, typically in in a young woman, um, chronic back pain going on for a year, struggling on with the kids and work, pain intensifying, then paralysis of both legs and bladder and bowel disturbance. You know, cauda equina syndrome is a very... Um, Uh, common functional presentation and you do the scan and there's no disc causing the problem Um, but yeah, sensory disturbance um, pain um, and fatigue yeah. and often the more you ask and then cognitive fogging and um, so often people say oh, yeah, you can ask about memory yeah, my memory is terrible um and actually it's not so much memory it's more that the information just isn't going in mm-hmm. you know it's an attentional problem and there is too much information coming from too much areas in the forms of pain and movement problems and weakness and headaches and um that actually there's not enough um space left in the cognitive reserve to take in the information so it never so sticks.
1: A, so it's a pretty daunting array of symptoms isn't it and I think maybe the take-home message for anybody approaching it like the early stages of their career, career is no matter what you're interested in you're probably going to see a functional presentations in your niche subspecialty no matter what it is. You um, will. Jason can we can I come to you then so um I mean, biog-wise, where does where does one start? Um,
2: well, I uh, I ended up um, in in Middlesbrough um, doing my doctorate in clinical psychology training. So, um, as as part of that, um, I was always a little bit of a psychodynamic um, person. I was uh, in the sort of third year, I did my specialist placements really in uh, in sort of psychoanalysis, um, and it was at the time I also did a placement um, in in neurolog- uh, sorry, neuropsychology. Um, and started to become interested in the similarities between the different approaches. And at the time, this this um, approach came out called neuropsychoanalysis by a, um, a, a guy called Mark Solms in New York, who was trying to locate the um, sort of the Freudian theory um, into sort of modern day, um, you know, neuroscience really. And I mean, we forget that Freud really was a you know a bit of a dabbler in in, in neurology in, in lots of ways and had freud been alive now i'm pretty sure he'd be a a neuroscientist um so i started to become interested in, in the, the neuroscience stuff um and more so and so eventually i ended up uh, doing neuropsychology rather than psychoanalysis and has things would have it I guess um, I've come sort of pretty much full circle now with the, the, the group of patients I'm particularly interested in which is the functional neurological people or you know conversion disorders uh, we might have called them in the past.
1: Yeah I, I mean the terminology also I mean it, it morphs all the time in, in neurology and particularly in psychiatry um, and psychology and the t- you know so th- there seems to be like a sort of gradual shift and change in how we think about these sorts of like problems so what's the most useful way of thinking about functional or what's the most kind of current terminology
2: I think uh, I mean I'm sure uh, Ro- Ros will agree functional neurological disorder tends to be the one that, that most people use um, the, the terminology is a huge huge problem um, because we even even um, the, the sort of the clinicians and the researchers that work in the field tend to use it slightly differently So. People that are much more motor movement-based use the term functional neurological disorder, but they're actually talking about um, the, the the more motor movement presentations. And then you get the people that are much more interested in the non-epileptic seizures, and they talk about FND, functional neurological disorder, but they're talking about models much more associated with, uh, you know, the, the dissociative seizures. So even within, you know, the, the sort of relatively small uh, functional Um, clinical community we all sort of tend to use uh, the same term in in slightly different ways where we're at now fortunately um, and again one of the big problems with with FND as a term is that it's not a diagnostic label um, although we now have with DSM-5 functional neurological symptom disorder and with ICD-11 we now have dissociative neurological symptom disorder and I think ICD 11 is is sort of coming into effect in in january 2022 so what i would encourage is the the neurologists you know when that um you know when icd 11 comes out for, for actual coding to start using it so we can start to collect data you know proper data and the numbers of people that are coming through um i did a, a, a very sort of quick audit a few years ago um in south Tees and i got in touch with the coding department and and gave them the whole list of ICD-10 codes for you know the the somatic disorders which includes uh, you know sort of various conversion disorders and somatic disorders Um, and there were were 25 cases recorded in five years in the whole of the hospital and (laughs) I'm sure I'm sure you see 25 in a month probably just in your own clinic Uh, so obviously we're not capturing the data and if we're not capturing the data we're not sure of how big the problem is so You know, trying to go to commissioners for services and things—it's—it's again, and this is why this is very much a hidden group. These people sort of tend to find themselves under, you know, pain pathways or fatigue pathways, or you know, gynaecology with unexplained sort of pelvic pain and various other things. So, you know, we're just about starting to get things um, sort of tight. I think.
1: What's that? I mean, I I come from a rather unenlightened kind of training scheme. Not—I don't mean this—and I mean that as an undergrad, really. where there was really not an awful lot of discussion around this sort of somatization and functional was not even a term being used. Um, Pseudo-seizures was the term, you know, was the nice term um, back then. It's kind of been uh, ditched now, rightly, I think. Um, I don't really have or I never really did have a clear model in my mind about, you know, how to kind of understand what was happening to um, patients in the run-up to the development of symptoms, is, is there a way we can think about that as neurologists that isn't going to kind of melt our brains?
2: There's more a question for you, Jason. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there are still um, A few general guidelines. So, um, you know, the the, the two large groups of functional presentations are people with the motor movement disorder and probably the, the, you know, the slightly larger group of people with these dissociative non-epileptic seizures. Um, The the people with the non-epileptic seizures, you know, you you generally find that around sort of three quarters of those people have suffered, um, you know, various adverse life events um, that other, you know, control groups, comparison groups, even sort of psychiatric comparison groups haven't. Um, so, you know, previous sort of trauma history, adversity um, seems to be seems to be in there. Um, there was then a, I think, a little bit of a pushback, uh, particularly in terms of patients with motor and movement problems. Um, there was a slightly um, less large proportion of those people that seem to have these adverse experiences. So around a third of those people, um, their symptoms seem to be preceded by physical injury or illness. So what we have are very sort of different pathways for different people um, to to reach the same kind of symptom set. Uh, But generally, even with those people, uh, the motor movement people um, that, that didn't have a previous adverse life history, during the, the onset of the symptom or during the, uh, the the injury or the illness, around 40% of them would have qualified for having a panic attack at the time. So there's still some sort of psychological element, if you like. However, we wish to, to sort of conceptualise that. Um, so sometimes you've got people that have problems, sort of lifelong problems that seem to stem from sort of childhood-type issues. And it's not necessarily um, about sort of specific types of abuse. It, it's it, it, you know is, is more likely uh to be things like neglect or emotional neglect things like that um and then you get people where they've been in an accident and it almost you know it's just sort of triggered this set of symptoms which fits really really well with these modern you know sort of contemporary cognitive neuroscience models that people like uh, you know sort of john stone and, and mark edwards talk about these sort of bayesian brain uh sort of modelings.
1: so i was so, uh, kind of uh, we were chatting just before everybody should have joined the call on um Kind of like a sort of biopsychosocial kind of model which i've seen talked about before, but never had really properly explained to me um, is that still a useful kind of model or is there is there a nicer way of thinking about it, or a better way to think about that
2: um, well I think that there are there are different models that explain it's like a goodness of fit really so it's trying to find one of the the, the various models so there might be different models that will better explain different types of symptom presentations or um, a patient's, um, you know, sort of experience of developing those symptoms. But they're not necessarily in competition with each other. You know, they might just be um, focusing slightly more on a particular aspect of something that, that that's sort of going on. So all, all the different aren't in competition with each other, and the biopsychosocial model is basically sort of lumping all those different. Um, theories models together to help you sort of think through you know the, the sort of the pertinent issues for that person in being able to come up with a formulation as to how the symptoms have developed and then you can develop a, a treatment plan so thinking about you know there's, there's the usual suspects you know adverse life history traumatic experiences uh, physical injury um you know e- and, and even sometimes when you're talking about childhood factors you might not necessarily be talking about um you know any types of um, sort of emotional neglect or, or abuse or anything like that what you might be trying to find out is did that did that person did that patient have a particular illness during childhood that might have set the trend for these symptoms um, or did they have a particular injury and that's certainly something that i've seen that when we've sort of gone back into someone's childhood there hasn't been any particular evidence of you know sort of abuse or uh, maltreatment in in various ways but what you might have had is someone that's had some kind of illness or injury that got better and then in adult life something's triggered off it's almost like a sort of memory bubble that opens up again and the symptoms just re-emerge and that fits really really well with these sort of bayesian brain and predictive coding type models that that we have now
1: okay Rose, i was trying to think a little bit about kind of clinics that you or I would probably have as, as neurologists, um, where patients are coming to see us more so maybe than the inpatient experience, which is, I think, slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you get to a diagnosis. Cause I think, um, certainly our lot of trainees worry about not recognizing it as functional or, uh, or maybe thinking it's functional when it's something else. And getting it wrong the, the wrong way. And like, there's a kind of real anxiety about that. I think um, what, if we focused on like a, 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 the motor sort of motor presentations, be that sort of weakness or hyperkinetic states, what sort of things are you looking for, for example, on examination that would make you you know, would prove your kind of hypothesis from history taking that this sounds functional.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I was gonna say exactly that. It's it's no different to any other neurological condition. And I'd encourage people to actually approach it exactly the same way as you approach other neurological conditions, you know, MS, Parkinson's disease, whatever. The history is 90% of your diagnosis. um, And, you know, now at the moment doing phone consultations I have been making functional diagnoses on, on the basis of a phone consultation with a caveat of, and I'll examine you when I'm able to, and we'll get mm. the scan done. But actually, this is what I think is going on. And I suppose, um, I think I was described in the past, I remember somebody saying that I would go where angels fear to tread just because I would say to the patient what I actually thought was wrong. And I think um, there's, this condition carries so much stigma and that shouldn't be the case because a third of people have no history of abuse or you know and 16 percent of patients with um epilepsy have had a history of childhood abuse and it has nothing to do with their epilepsy mm. so that's you know everybody gets very hung up on that stigma and that you know, you know do we ask about these risk factors forget that you know try and get the diagnosis of the neurological disorder right at the start it on the history there will be clues there Sometimes you're talking to, um, so in the history, you're talking to uh, a member of staff, you know, someone who's worked as a carer. So someone who's been aware of what can go wrong in the healthcare system. And they've probably in their family history mentioned that they're angry about the fact that their aunt was told they had migraines and then died of a brain tumour. And there might be things that have shaken their confidence in their own health that give you clues. Um, And then, yeah, a road traffic accident or something. So you've made that hypothesis of what's going on on the basis of the history, and then you're trying to confirm that positively by the examination, okay? So you're keeping your eye out for other hard neurological signs that could indicate comorbid disease because functional symptoms um, are, uh, are, uh, well, I think of them as a software error in the brain caused by um, sensory inputs and the salience of those inputs what that means to that person Um, and then hypervigilance and anxiety making that person ruminate on them the symptoms can snowball um, and um, you're trying to separate out if there was what Tilo Wolf, I don't know if you remember that Tilo oh, yeah. used to say, is there an organic crystal in the centre of the snowflake? And I love that phrase because, you know, there is a there is a small minority of patients, but, you know, it's not that small, maybe about, you know, 10% or so. Of the people and that we see with functional symptoms will have something else going on they're developing ms or if you follow them for long enough suddenly you realize two years down the line actually there's a hot cross bun on the scan and they're developing multiple systems atrophy and the first scan was normal and i've confidently told you this is functional but actually you know there's been increasing anxiety about instability and actually now the condition has declared itself so Just because you have functional symptoms doesn't mean that all of those 25 symptoms are functional. There's a couple of them that might be due to other things. So I do think you've got to make a list of those 25 symptoms. (laughs) And that's the hard work bit of it. And the fact that, you know, it does take time, but it's important. Um, to pick out which symptoms you feel are functional and which could have other causes. You know, have you have you checked them for diabetes, the tingly toes? Is that actually something organic because they're less mobile and put on weight? So think about core morbid, morbid conditions. When you're doing the physical examination, you're looking for any hard neurological signs. And, you know, I do image people looking for any evidence of demyelination because often young women with early MS, as they're developing MS, present with functional weakness. Um, and so when it comes to the hard neurological signs um the the type of weakness is important often it's sort of collapsing or give way they can manage power five out of five transiently and then they give way there may be pain involved in that um you get distractibility so um when it comes to um, testing the limb itself, if there's a tremor and they're looking at the limb, the limb will tremor. If, As you're taking that history, you can watch the movements and you can see whether the, the tremor settles as the person is distracted. You can try to get them actively to move the opposite arm and you'll notice that the tremor stops or the tremor might entrain to the beat of the opening and closing of the opposite hand. And you can speed that up or slow that down. And those are all, no other tremor does that. So that's a positive feature of a functional tremor. Um, Hoover sign. um, So um, if you test um, the weak leg, the the stroke event leg, um, hip flexion can be overcome because it's weak. Hip extension can be overcome and you can lift the leg. You then try to test hip flexion on the opposite side and they're no longer focusing on hip extension on the side you've just tested. So as you're testing, um, the pushing up of the thigh on the opposite side you're feeling for the trying to lift the other leg and you'll realize that as they're focused on the opposite leg the the hip extensor on the first leg becomes strong and you can no longer lift it and you can show that to the patient and say look that's interesting that's that fits with a software error okay mm. rather than damage um, and so That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to pick up any hard neurological signs that make you think, "Mm, okay, did that planter go up? Do I need to image the nervous system higher up? Um, And have I picked up firm features that tell me this is functional weakness or this is a functional tremor? And you can do that. And then you can feel quite confident about saying, well, with your history, you know, If it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, this could be a duck. And I'm happy to say that at the first meeting, you know, which I think picked me out (laughs) at the time, is because often people shy away from saying, no, I think that's what this is. And it should be said without any concern about childhood abuse or stigma, you know. This is a neurological disorder, it's the software not working.
1: I think I quite like that idea of using something like a Hoover sign as part of your explanation for why you think it's functional. Because um, I've seen it used almost as a sort of, like a trick, like a coat yeah. like you out or patients sometimes feel that way. We're like, I, I like to focus on it as, it not that interesting? You know, that leg can be strong. That's a really good sign. You know, if we could find a way Absolutely. to to operationalize that, the strength that's there, if we could reconnect your brain to your leg, you know, that could be a, a a way to get you towards recovering. Um, so, yeah, I like that. It's a very positive feature in my yes. consultations, if I can find it. Is that is that your take as well, Rose?
0: Absolutely. And um, I remember a man who had broken his arm and had had his arm in plaster. And I think he'd had a li- probably a little bit of muscle weakness, you know, after taking the, the cast off. And that turned from a, a mild shake to a, a really troublesome functional tremor and the first time i saw him he'd never been ill before he was in his 50s and i gave him a cup of water in the opposite hand and the the problematic hand stopped shaking and i had to point it out to him because he wouldn't have noticed it because if you ask patients with functional tremor how often is your hand shaking oh, it's all the time but we know that if we put an activity monitor on their arm it's not it's about 25 minutes a day but it's that's the time that they're looking at their hands so when I pointed out his still hand he got the shock of his life and that was mm. really all the treatment he needed and he was like oh is that all it is oh, okay so I'll just hold a cup of water in the other hand then I'm cured and I never saw him again and I assume that I <laughs> <laughs> assume that 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 concern about that <clears throat> tremor that got worse every time he looked at it has just gone away <laughs> mm. um and it's very useful you can use distraction exactly that way to help recovery
1: there's a a question came in from uh christina one of our registrars about uh did we have any tips on dealing with functional patients via telephone consultation when examination isn't possible i have been finding this quite difficult i think that's a huge understatement yeah it's really challenging Any, any any top tips roz
0: I would completely agree. Um, I think, you know, I could be criticised for mentioning the diagnosis without having examined the patient. But I think, you you know, you're having to balance risk at the moment. And um, I would always be planning to see the patient at some point down the line mm. um, and usually planning to scan the patient too. Um, so, um, yeah, I think you go on your, your clinical impression and then, I have been making appointments with them later to meet them to do blood tests and and examine them. I think you do you do have to examine the patient.
1: Good. okay. and I, I think we could talk for, for ages about different kind of techniques, like for like visual loss and the kind of tubular fields and those sorts of things. but we we'll maybe we'll maybe kind of move on a little bit. Um, I wanted to try and compare and contrast the kind of neurology consultation. Within your psychology consultation, because uh, I'm sure they're very different. For starters, we get like tops thirty minutes, um, maybe like quarter of an hour for a review. Um, I'm hoping it's slightly different, Jason, than your, um, in your
2: yeah, in your. yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, we have the uh, the, the luxury of time uh, with with patients. So, um, I mean, if if I saw someone for a first session, I'd probably allow about an hour and a half um and i'd allow maybe even sort of two to three assessment sessions before i, I sort of came to any kind of a, a formulation um and, and sometimes you can't find any sort of angle in and i mean maybe we'll come on to this this sort of um, a little bit later but i've i've uh, probably changed the way in which i work quite considerably over the past 10 years based upon the emerging um evidence base for different sort of treatments and the different models um, that, that we have. So I, uh, even as a psychologist, I, I sort of tend not to sort of jump straight in looking for a, a sort of a psychological angle necessarily. Um, I just give space for the person to, to tell their story, um, you know, how these symptoms developed, how they're experiencing them, what makes it worse, what makes it sort of better. Um, and it's only then that we sort of start to move into areas where we might be trying to find some, something to try to explain, you know, sort of predisposing, precipitating trigger factors and, and what might be maintaining factors with that. And sometimes there doesn't appear to be anything to, to work with sort of psychologically um, in lots of ways. So I, I usually have a, just through experience, it's not particularly evidence-based, but I, I have like a five session model that if something doesn't drop out by the fifth session for me to work with, it, it's probably not. So even when something isn't sort of quite there, I can't quite get a handle on that. Uh, usually by session five, people might just mention something that they just never thought was important, particularly, and maybe that's about a bit of trust or you just keep working through the material. And then someone will just sort of say, oh, and it's like, oh, well, you, you didn't mention that before. Well, I didn't think it was important. Um, so it can take quite a while. And this isn't the kind of, um, you know, luxury, I suppose, that that you guys have, you know, having five one hour sessions, you know, maybe on a weekly basis to, to sort of comb through this, this person's experience. So yes, we do have this, this luxury of, of time.
1: Well, I, mean, I'm, I'm yeah, I, so. I feel that, um, that my approach has, has changed a lot as well. Cause I have this slightly sort of naive approach that it was my job on the first consultation to get into the past life experiences and the, you know, stress and anxiety and kind of mental health issues you know I, I think it's a really good way to wreck a consultation um if patients are coming to you uh, like as a neurologist rose do you not think people are sometimes coming to us really expecting a very sort of physical traditional kind of doctor patient interaction and if you turn that on its head really early on that's it's fairly toxic to your kind of dynamic
0: Um, I think that's right. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, I I don't know what you think, Jason, but I think um, it's uh, not all patients will need or want to go to psychology. And I think you're looking at, I mean, my, my aim really is, okay, to make the diagnosis, I've got to be as firm as I can be on this diagnosis. Um, And then what are the barriers to this person? And really by the psychosocial model, i am that's just making me look at every aspect of that person's life and what are the barriers to that person moving on with their life and getting quality of life now. Um, so what barriers are we trying to remove? And that might be just very physical and it might be purely down to excellent physiotherapy. We've got brilliant physiotherapists in Glasgow. We're so lucky that way. We, um, we don't have treating neuropsychology at the moment, so we've kind of had to work without that, um, which mm. is by no means easy. <laughs> um, but prior to that, we there was a model when I arrived as a consultant that everyone went to neuropsychology, which is maybe equally wrong, um, particularly if they don't see that that's going to be useful to them, if they don't want to. I've had people where I've been certain that actually psychologists could help them um but they've absolutely been dead against that and there's no purpose you know there's really no point in that so it's got to be it's got to fit with the person's view of what is obstructing their progress Um, and I think that's what I'm trying to find out when I meet them Um, and sometimes um I'm trying all angles so I think of, you know, in some people, yes, there might be that predisposing early life experiences with abuse or whatever, or neglect, but, um, so the fear centre, the amygdala has been primed to be overactive, and it's a bad habit that the brain has gotten into. And, um, you know, when the eagle flies over, the rabbit freezes. That's not a choice for the rabbit. That happens absolutely automatically. And the motor system and the emotional system are very linked. And that amygdala is triggered by anxiety, pain, fear. So, you know, um, a migraine um, might trigger this off every time. And I've got some really difficult situations with some patients who develop terrible paralysis of both legs or down one side. And. Um, with a migraine and they've a migraine every three weeks and it takes them two and a half weeks to recover from the weakness and then the migraine hits again. So I've been focused on trying to treat pain. Um now that may be the wrong approach, but if, if they don't see a role for psychology and they feel that it's their migraine that's the issue, okay, well we'll go with that. And I think it's a bit of trial and error because no two people with FND are the same, you know? Um they wind up in the same place. Um, but they may not have the same roots there or the same barriers to getting quality of life back.
1: Jason, can I bring you in then? So if, I mean, I, I think Rose is absolutely spot on with that kind of like, you know, there there can't be like 100% of patients referred for this intervention, be it physical interventions or neuropsychological ones. Um, who do you, Who do you want to see or what do you want us to say to patients to, before we refer them, you know, so that they don't come with a kind of defences and raised and hackles up?
2: Um, I think as, you know, Ros had mentioned earlier, the the explanation that seems to work well for a lot of people that, you know, a really sort of nice metaphor is is that uh, hardware software model, you know, and and it avoids having to get into lots of psychological conversations or you know sort of upsetting people by inferring that you know there's some sort of mental health issue there when maybe there isn't um so explaining it in terms of that sort of hardware software model I think you know really sort of fits people's experience of of why they're in neurology with these problems Um, there was um I mean you know going back to sort of terminology again you know the the other big umbrella term that's used is medically unexplained symptoms and that has various Uh, terms associated with it. Um, The IAPT, the, you know, the sort of national CBT service, um, they produced a a positive practice guideline um, a few years ago, about three, four years ago, uh, for people with medically unexplained symptoms. And what they found is that patients didn't engage with mental health services. They wanted their treatment within neurology pathways. So again, I think it's important that, you know, patients don't, um, you know, get, sort of told oh well you know you don't have anything neurologically wrong and we're going to refer you to psychiatry or we're going to ask your GP to refer you to to, to mental health that you know that that sort of really sort of doesn't doesn't rub well with the majority of people because people sort of say well I'm here with a physical problem and that's how I understand what's going on so we need to engage with, with that so I think one of the things is that we need to ensure is that treatment stays within uh, their their neurology pathway and whoever pr- provides that treatment, whether it's you know various psychological practitioners or or whatever else um but I think using that you know quite quite nice metaphor and the software i think gets around that issue of people sort of looking for you know sort of lesions or you know various other things that that explain the symptoms and and is and is accurate as well really
1: I think one of my one of the things I came to late which is it has become a useful top tip for me is the sort of um benign inquisitor that I have in clinic, uh, uh, say to our medical students sometimes, because it always strikes me that if you take a past medical history as part of your history in clinic, you'll get all sorts of things uh, told. People very rarely will say, uh, you know, I've suffered from depression in the past or I've had anxiety, that it's rarely volunteered uh, in the way that gastroesophageal reflux disease and ingrown toenails and all sorts of other things are. And, and yet, you you know for yourself that this is likely to be the case because often the GP referral has a whole long list of stuff, including kind of anxiety or depression. And I, I think over time, because it's a very physical consultation that people are expecting, I sort of benignly go through the medication, um, and ask what they're all for. And in the main, I know what they're for, obviously. But you know, I'll go aspirin. What are you on that for? That's for, that was that was for my angina. Okay, and and the. And the losartan, what's that? Oh, that's for me- that's a hypertension, and the metform diabetes. Yeah, and I sort of start off with all the very sort of traditional ones, and then they say, oh, is this Citalopram. What's what what you what are you on that one for? Oh, you know, well, I've been on that uh, for depression. Okay, do you mind me asking a bit more about that? How long have you been on it? Is it helpful? And I think sometimes you can get into the kind of mental health history through a kind of side entry point, like medication. Um, so I think just for those of folk listening, I've, I've definitely found that really helpful. Uh, it also gives you a time frame for the depression. How long have you been on the citalopram? And sometimes that maps onto the symptoms. Uh, and then you can begin, people can connect then the dots themselves, maybe.
0: What, I think, what think often I've asked, I was just going to put in, often I've asked about it prior to that, just in the symptom list, as I'm going through the symptoms, as you know, John Stone says, well, it takes about 35 minutes. There's not really time for it in a standard neurology consultation. But, you know, what's, so let's go through your symptoms. What's number one? And there's, you know, usually the pain, the weakness, the numbness. the And then we'll go all the way through. I'll ask about bladder, bowel, sleep um and then um anxiety levels get them to rate those out of 10 if 10 out of 10 was a panic attack mood what's your mood like Get get that rated out of 10 if zero was suicidal you know this is just my arbitrary quick-ish way of doing it and get a pain pain rating score as well so i've been through all that um and often if you've exhausted that at the start then it's you know i'm not going in straight asking about stress or about depression as such you know I'm, I'm asking about that as part of everything else you know as the whole person sort of thing and mm. um, and and that has never really been controversial you know and some people do come in and do want to talk about that and yeah. um, but they're probably in the minority most people don't feel that you know mental health issues or the mood are, are the main thing
1: and I think it, it, I mean is that the sort of draining the symptoms dry approach that John yeah. talks about where you where you kind of try and generate as big a list, an exhaustive list of symptoms.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. It is time consuming, but I I find it, it's a really good way to get through it all. And then often um, people will have given you that story around that list. um, And um, at the end, Um, There'll then come the question about memory, you know, cognitive. So I'll I'll ask about speech and cognitive. Often that's come up before because sometimes expressive speech production is a problem or they feel it is, but then at points where they've been um, very motivated to tell you what's happened and things that they've been angry about, you know, the speech will be quite fluent. The memory you'll you'll realize because you've got a very full detailed history. I'll have you know two pages of A4 by the end of the consultation and there's a lot of history there that tells me that actually memory's intact. Mm-hmm. You know, and the memory will come up and at the very end and often it'll be I'm really worried about my memory and you know maybe this is dementia and I'll be able to say well look you've given me a fantastic history there. I'm actually not worried about your memory at all. We can test it if you like, but I think this will show that actually it's it's your pain getting in the way and your you know ability to attend to things that's the problem. Problem. you're never laying down the memory but yeah that's and, what I do I drain the symptoms dry
1: and I, I think it's reasonable then to if you do that because it's because then you think you know particularly when when I was a more junior uh, neurology trainee you'd look at this long list of symptoms and you just think well where do you even start with those but I, I think it's reasonable then to maybe select a few to go into yeah. much more detail on the priority symptoms and and yet you know, you've, you've sort of listened and you've documented everything, but you're just going to focus on a couple. And I think that's probably that seems to work well.
0: And what I would say as well is that for this group of patients who really struggle with stigma, struggle to get anyone to listen to them, hmm. despite the fact they attend hospital a lot you know, but it's recurrently for 15 minutes or half an hour, you know, with a distracted doctor who's made up their mind within two seconds of seeing them walk in the door that they're functional, there's nothing else to do, you know. So I think it's really therapeutic and it's a therapeutic consultation to get all of that information out. You have listened to them, you know. You've drained the symptoms dry and that in itself is helpful, particularly with someone who's very, very angry. Um, mm-hmm. And you do see sort of patterns. I've seen a few people with... Um, dreadful dreadful disabling um hyperkinetic movement disorders almost head banging moving disorder you can almost feel the anger (laughs) and they're really angry (laughs) there's been a common theme of anger there sometimes I get them to rate their anger as well because sometimes that internal anger you almost think gosh is the movement disorder some sort of way of getting this out I don't know Um, um, but it's incredibly disabling. Um, but anger has been at the root of it. And you've almost had to go through the history and they will tell you what they're angry about, but that's quite therapeutic as well. But it's not enough. Half an hour of expressing yeah. that is not enough.
1: I'm conscious that we haven't really talked very much about dissociative attacks, Jason. And I wanted to to come on to that because, again, I think I've switched my terminology at... Um, don't really talk about non epileptic attacks as much maybe as i did because it feels a little bit like a non diagnosis mm-hmm. um and i quite like this notion of dissociation um but you know from a from a neuropsychological perspective what what is dissociation why is that happening what's kind of going on
2: well um again we get into the the, the terminology so traditionally the concept of dissociation has been very much aligned with uh you know the sort of psychodynamic field which is where the dissociation it, you know people sort of zone out or be- become disconnected in a variety of ways and it's seen that that's some kind of a defense from overwhelming or distressing images or impulses or information if you like that's that's going to threaten to overwhelm that person so a bit, bit like a circuit breaker so that sort of started um, you know, at, at sort of, I suppose, the, uh, the, the beginning of the 20th century with sort of Freud and Charcot and Janet and, and people like that. Um, but Janet in particular became more interested in the actual mechanism of dissociation. Um, rather than the the sort of the, the psychological aspect the, the almost the, the cognitive aspect so he started to become interested in what what the mechanism of dissociation was which is which that sort of led us to the current conceptualization which is a disintegration of the normally integrated parts of functioning of you know sort of cognition perception um you know sort of thought bodily perception um so it's it's basically just a splitting it, it's a disconnection and that disconnection can happen through a you know, a sort of multiplicity of, of different systems, really. So sometimes that can be a, um, a a sort of perception of conscious unawareness. So you know that would fit very well with um, you know dissociative seizure, non-epileptic seizure. But I would also say that dissociation is also the mechanism for you know the motor and movement disorders that there's a disconnection between the normally integrated functions of the central nervous system and the uh, the cognitive processing of that. So I would see Association in that more cognitive neuroscience term um, as being the actual mechanism that would explain um, all the different types of functional presentations. That there's a, a disconnection between those normally integrated uh, functioning systems.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And so, I suppose I mean this might be an impossible thing thing to 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 achieve in a in a short time. But uh, so if you if you're seeing patients where dissociation is a is a very prominent component of their neurological presentation. As a neuropsychologist, what do you do about that?
2: Well, again, um, uh, there's, there seems to be a sort of slightly different makeup between the people that have the non-epileptic seizures and the more motor movement uh, problems. So those people do tend to have, you know, much greater trauma history. So again, you know, through through the process of assessment you might be able to identify that there are um you know very sort of specific predisposing events you know you can see quite clearly that some people have very specific triggers and some people it's almost like a PTSD plus syndrome um and, and sometimes I might just you know sort of couch it again in the, in, in those terms and, and again there would be sort of more effective treatments um for that with, with specific types of trauma. Um, so I, I tend to like to think when um I'm doing an assessment with someone around this this idea of um cause you know what what's actually caused the symptoms and that might be these you know sort of predisposing precipitating trigger events that, that helps identify that um i then like to think about maybe what the function is what what does this presentation um, help or hinder that that might you know sort of um, maintain the symptom set and then i like to think about the mechanism what's actually happening because that then gives us At least, sort of, three different areas to work on. We might not be able to work in some areas, but if we think in in those sort of three general terms, we can find ways to work maybe sort of independently uh, with each different section. Um, So, with a dissociation, if it does seem to be a a, a sort of a a trauma reaction, a sort of you know fight, flight, freeze uh, kind of response, we might want to be working on the trauma. We'll try a variety of grounding techniques. So, when people feel as though they're getting that sense of dissociating when they can sort of sense it, it sort of happening uh, we try to help them develop a series of techniques that keep them sort of focused on the moment until the, the sort of the critical period sort of goes away um sometimes i use a little bit of uh, hypnosis to try to inculcate a a controlled dissociation which is what hypnosis is to help them gain sort of mastery um you know over that kind of a sensation so when they experience the sensation coming on People often very, get very, very frightened and feel as though it's completely out of control with grounding techniques and hypnosis to, to recreate a, a purposeful and controlled dissociation. It helps them to uh, become more at ease, I suppose, with those um, those sensations and to start to use a variety of techniques to get hold of it. And I would say that that's, that's probably a bit of a quick win. So sometimes... That might be all you need to do. So you know, going back to this idea of, you know, sort of trawling through people's trauma history, it might be a case of, well, look, you know, if we can get a few grounding techniques in, a bit of control of these things, you might be happy with that. You you might not want to sort of start. You know, there might be all this stuff there, but you might not. You know, that that might not be where you want to go. You just want to get these things under control, and you're happy, and that works for us. So, I'm I'm not sort of uh, in the business, I suppose, of of trying to sort of rake through everything and make. You know uh, things um, sort of salient that that aren't for the for the person, and and I like to sort of work backwards. You know, get a few sort of quick wins in to try to help control uh, maybe what's going on that's causing um, you know more immediate distress, and then we can sort of comb back and see if there's anything else we need to uh, to do there.
1: That's really great. It's quite I think it's quite nice because um, uh, we don't get to refer that many people to neuropsychology do we i mean rose i don't know zero maybe in glasgow at the minute but well, <laughs> um, it's nice it's, we get it's nice to see the other side of it
0: segments, but no treatment that's right. trouble well yeah. no that is not true they do uh, a couple of sessions treatment for dissociative seizures based on the body scan the, she- the sheffield marcus rubers workbook but it's literally it's a couple of sessions um, and
1: okay. i wanted to talk for the last little bit because uh, it covered quite a lot about you know how things present, about how to kind of think about it, how to talk about it. Um, I I wanted to t- talk about a, a little bit about how you discuss, a, you know, what words you use in clinic, Ros, maybe to to introduce the concept of functional. I mean, you've hinted at it already a wee bit with the kind of hard, hardware software. Are, are there kind of...
0: I use that a lot, yeah. Are, are, there,
1: are there no-go areas? Are there... Um, Absolute like whatever you do, don't say this. This is like a this is a this is this is how to train wreck your consultation.
0: <laughs> well, I think um I think it depends on the person. Hmm. Um and often letting them speak, and that's the key to the history at the start, um, with keeping them on the track of those symptoms, they will tell you what they're unhappy about and what's gone before that they're unhappy about um so you you get the clues of what to avoid um often so um yeah often the person will give you those clues in the history I find if there's Mm. anything that they really don't want to and you know yeah I mean usually the worst thing you can do is leap straight in with well are you stressed Mm -hmm. (laughs) um which really doesn't you know and and also it's 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 actually just not relevant because me as the doctor in the clinic sitting there Well, i'm stressed it's not mean, it's not the point
1: i had a i had a letter today from um the gp of one of my long established functional patients i've been seeing on and off for years now um and it's it's another letter about what about another scan um you know well, how do you deal with the sort of you know my tests haven't really given me an answer so I think I need another scan. Is there a, is there a way around that?
0: Um, I think I think it's difficult. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm not someone that argues with patients who want scans. Um, mm. I scan patients if they want scans, which might be slightly controversial, but. Um, I would say, you know, judicious use of investigations, but I think actually scans are some of the more useful investigations, particularly in in young people who may develop other things. Um, So, yeah, I I have had one young man come back adamant that he wanted a second scan sort of two years or three years after the first one for the same problem. Um, And he ended up getting it. I did end up, you know, and I told him, look, this is going to be normal because it's it's you know, your symptoms are not caused by an, an abnormality on your scan. Um, and I I don't I don't really have an issue doing that if it is treating the underlying anxiety that he's wound himself in knots about that this time it is MS. Mm. (laughs) It's very difficult because um, and that hypervigilant person who didn't have any history of trauma or anything, but was just very self-monitoring of every single tingle and symptom, and you can see how it happens, um, and every single dizzy spell. Um, But yes, if you'd come back again, I would have said, no, this is not helping you. Yeah. so i mean i don't i don't stand in the way of them having scans but it's not going to solve the problem and it's not really the point if you scan them before and it's the same issue then it's likely the scan is going to be the same again and we need to deal with you coping with your symptoms really
1: hmm. i think i use the the migraine analogy a wee bit with a lot of folk where i'll sort of say well look you know if if i had a terrible migraine right now with neurological symptoms and aura and bad headache and you put me in the mri scanner you just see a structurally healthy brain it wouldn't uh it wouldn't help my symptoms it wouldn't explain my symptoms you wouldn't see them on the scan um and so actually often these things where the function of the brain isn't right you, you just don't see it scans aren't yeah. up to it and uh but but it is a challenge and I, you know I'm going to have to manage this one like, like you say is you know like you know what what will this add um <coughs> okay that's great I, I wanted to to talk about the thorny issue now I know you both feel very strongly about this and I do too but um, about services for functional patients um we've got you know services for Parkinson's and MS and epilepsy and all sorts of other things um, <clears throat> there aren't that many functional services <coughs> Um what's your experience, Rose, of trying to set up a functional service? Because I know that's been tricky.
0: Yes. Um it has been tricky. And I think it's particularly tricky um when there's a perception that this isn't a neurological disorder. Um uh, and that because these as I say, um It's a neurological disorder. These patients have neurological symptoms. The differentials are neurological. (laughs) So they're always going to turn up at neurology. And we know that 60% of them are going to carry on with symptoms. And I see it. And I did a functional clinic for about four years. And I got to know quite a lot of the functional patients in Glasgow quite well. So that I knew their story. I knew their background. And it was really interesting seeing how their condition evolved. Mm. But, you know, with a clear explanation and um, some help at the start, some got better. Um, we then had less help over time. But um, I think the clear explanation still helped. And the fact that I knew them helped. And I saw somebody present with cognitive symptoms such that they were investigated as an inpatient for query limbic encephalitis. Um, there was a clear prodrome of work related stress prior to that for quite some time. Followed by a dystonia down one side, followed by a resolution of that dystonia. Um, and I did image him again at that point because that was about two years after the cognitive thing, um, followed by um, resolution of that dystonia and then dystonia down the opposite side, <laughs> hmm. which has subsequently resolved. And actually he's done really, really well and is now back in a job, not the same job he started in, but is coping with the symptoms, having, you know, um, a quality of life um with his family. And um I think it's better that these people come back to someone who knows them um so that I can say, actually I yeah, this is I think this is still functional. Um and I think, you know, we need some physiotherapy. Um I mean I don't know why this has happened to him in that way and why it's evolved in that way. And it's been interesting as the same person seeing that over four or five years. Um, But he's done quite well. Um, I think it's, well, it, it is the stigma. This is a neurological disorder. It takes an hour to sort out and I would far rather spend, well actually I have been known to spend sort of three hours with the same person preventing them being recurrently admitted and getting myself into huge problems because I spent three hours with them one afternoon and don't have time to do that. But it stopped them being readmitted and solved that problem but it's not seen as being of value because I need to be seeing lots of people at half hour intervals because that's what waiting times need, you know? Um, But, you know, if you were seeing someone in the dystonia service and putting wires in their head, you know, you'd be spending an awful lot more time with them. And it's worth working out before you do that, if it's functional or not. And these patients require what they require <laughs> yeah. you know just because the service is not set up for them that's not their fault is um that,
1: and is i think there a problem rose sorry to mm-hmm. interrupt but like is there a problem with the thinking of neurologists
0: yes yes i think have we got that, a cognitive that, problem <laughs> we do it, it's historical um and i think also it's that oh my goodness heart sink i'm not really very interested in this i've only got half an hour i'm going to get this person out of the room, Mm. Um, you know, and the aim is diagnosis and discharge, or maybe even not diagnosis, just there's nothing wrong, discharge. Um, Go away, become someone else's problem. And these people are seen recurrently as new patients, half an hour after half an hour, you know, six times, (laughs) when you could have dealt with the problem more effectively for the patient. Um, We know that it costs less in the the long run. Patients are less disabled, less distressed. And if that person was presenting with the same disability, and had MS, they would get support, a service, recurrent appointments. And um, the lack of a, a, a label for this condition has resulted in this no neurological diagnosis and therefore no support and no rehabilitation for these patients. And that mm. has to change. It's not, I don't know if you saw the programme by... Um, Christy Burness in Liverpool you know and she said at the end you know the NHS is there for all patients and the functional patients are not being served at present and that's exactly how I feel about it Mm. and they're too psychiatric for neurology too disabled for the pain team um, and too neurological for psychiatry but it's all the brain and the brain goes wrong and we need to devise services that fit their problem.
1: Yeah I'm glad you said that I feel like I mean, I do a lot of undergrad teaching, and and I had to, you know, break down my approach to Parkinson's one day onto one slide, um, and it sort of boiled down to patient and carer education and a multidisciplinary team approach and medication and surgery. That was kind of like my one slide four point thing. And as I was writing that slide, I was thinking, that's the same for MS. And it's the same for epilepsy and actually maybe hopefully without the surgery but you could kind of repurpose that for kind of other interventions it's kind of the same for functional right it's like you have this chronic long-term neurological disorder i'm going to invest time and effort explaining this to you and your family and i am going to try and link you up with whatever team members i have available for whatever the symptoms are and the appropriate kind of spread. um, And I'm going to use medication to try and dial your symptoms down or improve your ability to kind of live with those symptoms. And I'm going to kind of involve other things as well. You know, so like it it sort of boggles my mind that we have to have some sort of other approach that that, uh, that's lesser. um, Mm -hmm. When in fact it's, it's kind of like, I, I think it really is one of the big five.
0: I totally agree with you. And, um, you know, we know it's a neurological disorder. And we've been here before with dystonia Mm. um, when it was all thought to be, you know, off to just treat (laughs) it psychologically. And then we started finding genes and became a bit more interested in neurology. And I think FND is quite similar, you know. Mm. Um, But absolutely, these patients deserve support and are not getting it at present. um, And that's not how it should be. And we need to change that.
1: Um, Jason, can I bring you in? Because I know that you have for years been kind of writing business cases and negotiating with commissioners and hospital services and trying to find ways to kind of leverage support. Um, What's your experience been? Because Roz's experience has been challenging and difficult. Does yours mirror that?
2: yeah pretty much and uh, going back to what ros has said it's i think the 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 big problem has been one of one of ownership nobody owns this patient group um, they don't fit neatly um, anywhere you know as, as ros has said they're, they're too neurologic for psychiatry and too psychiatric for neurology um and then you get that sort of schism really and they don't fit in anywhere so then they're just sort of falling through the gaps and then i don't know whether they just sort of get on with it or you know they end up in paint or a variety of things but the the actual functional um issue itself sort of you know doesn't really sort of get um get noticed so i think think the big problem is is about ownership um and it's you know it, it doesn't make sense at all because there's quite a bit of data that's come out now that's you know Everybody thinks their their own patients are, are you know, the, the most important. That's, you know, that's what the commissioners hear. All, everybody, you know, every clinician sort of wants to go and say, well, you need to give money to, to, to our service. Um, the evidence that's coming out now in terms of working with functional patients is is really sort of unequivocal in terms of the financial benefit. Um, you know, it saves a huge amount of money. So when we did our business case for, for South Tees, um we we, we did a, an initial sort of financial analysis on about sort of 28 patients and then we, we chose a subsection of the first twelve patients that that we got through our service and we um calculated their um health economic cost three years prior to treatment and then three years after treatment. Um we 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 got our you know sort of finance people to 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 pull those uh, that data out i went through the data and sort of cleaned it up as much as i could um, in terms of sort of saying you know as, as we've said well just because you've got a functional neurological disorder doesn't mean say, that there isn't anything else going on with you so I, I tried to sort of take out those kinds of interventions that might you know if someone went in for a hip replacement i'm i feel pretty sure that that you know the orthopedic <laughs> surgeon would, would have been on the ball and it, it wouldn't be functional so i took those kinds of things out and tried to clean the data up as, as much as i could um, and what we found that on average is that for the three years preceding each year, each patient used about £3,000 in terms of healthcare utilisation. And for the uh, the two and a half to three years after treatment, that had dropped to £300. So, you know, we calculated that basically just after one year, with the cost of the treatment from, uh, the, and it was just sort of, you know, neuropsychology that, that we had at the time we've got physio on board, which is great. Um, even within just the first year out they would have made the money back the commissioners would have made the money back and then they would have had recurrent savings year on year so the finances stack up if you want to get hardcore about about money but you know we've also got this this patient group that are improving and are able to sort of you know have a much better quality of life as well so you know it's um it's it's tricky just trying to get that group on the agenda because well we, we, one of the reasons we're talking about it is that we're all um, you know people that work quite closely with these patients and still we struggle with you know some of the concepts and what's going on and whatever start to talk to commissioners and it's just you know you, we be you know, talking science fiction to it's just sort of not uh, it's just not tangible for them
1: what would be a stylized like money was no object um, there were no barriers in your ways and this is for both of you really Uh, maybe start with Jason though Um, what would be like an ideal service what do we what what do we need
2: Um, well I I would treat it um, as you would sort of neuro rehab you'd have a a sort of a neuro rehab team with all those people involved in that you'd have neurology um, psychology OT speech and language therapy Uh, physio of course um you know some psychiatry sort of thrown in um you would have an mdt and you'd have an mdt discussion you'd have an mdt formulation and an mdt uh you know plan of, of treatment um i mean i basically when we set our service up it was just me and you know i sort of said earlier that i wouldn't i wouldn't do some of the things or i wouldn't accept maybe some of the people now um Based upon what I've known, because a lot of the motor and movement people, I think they should probably have primary physiotherapy first, and Mm -hmm. you know we'd maybe have a you know um, an assessment to see what else is going on. But my experience has been when I've worked with motor and movement patients, um, there might be psychological issues there that we can help with. We can help with um, you know various other aspects of quality of life, Um, but very very rarely have I worked psychologically with someone and. The symptoms have resolved, so you know. And I'm very much a, a believer in you know this sort of cognitive neuroscience. Well, you know whether there've been psychological triggers, but you now have this disturbance um, of the central nervous system in whatever way, and you need a neuro rehab approach. So I, I sort of couch a, a lot of it in terms of neuro rehabilitation, which I think sort of uh, you know a lot of people um, you know seem to find sort of quite usable.
1: Okay. And and Rose would, you know anything from your perspective like if you had a wish list up in Glasgow?
0: Um yes, I I would uh so I, I think I think um yeah it I think it takes a bit of experience and certainly doing it on your own <laughs> Um, with help from brilliant physiotherapy uh, colleagues um, it's it's far more useful to have someone in psychology and um, potentially someone interested in psychiatry and psychodynamic therapy um, to bounce ideas off. Um, and I think probably the best rehab teams have an assessment where everyone and it's the same team, you're not you're not dealing with separate community teams. You need to know your therapist. You need to know how each other work. You need to use the same language. We have had some good results with um my liaison psychiatry colleague Dr. Burnell and working with speech therapy, you know, and lots of emails, but it's quite hard work and it's quite mm. time intensive. Um but you would want um uh, an intensive assessment and then um a planned, um, time-limited, intensive um, rehabilitation, ideally as an outpatient, if it could be done as an outpatient. But again, different people are different. And if it was geog- geographically difficult or mobility-wise difficult, a, a brief inpatient spell, not a long protracted, but something something intensive that would fit with that person's level of fatigue um, and you would need to be mindful of the negative markers um such as pain um and you you might you know i have tried to collaborate with pain teams and pain colleagues as well um and often there when people have terrible chronic pain and are stuck in wheelchairs you know there there isn't a purpose in physio in that group you know Mm. because they're too pain limited um and um I don't know what you feel, Jason, about sort of complex regional pain type stuff. When pain is dreadful, you need, uh, there's been some success with sort of mirror therapy um, from a physio point of view and and maybe the cognitive, maybe pain psychology um, to cope with the pain because you're not going to be able to move until you get over the pain and the physio is not going to be able to help you until you find a way around that. Um, so different courses for different horses, but access to all of them. <laughs> right. Um,
2: just in, in relation to. Sorry, I was just saying, just in relation to that, um, where pain seems to be a, a big trigger or a big barrier. Um, I'd, I'd seen a, um, a chap just last year that was referred to me by physio. He'd got um, sort of functional torticollis. Um, they couldn't work with him because of the, the 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 level of pain he felt, and his you know sort of neck was twisting around here. Um, and he's done some work with me, uh, doing some, you know, education on on FND. Um, so I'd and said to him, uh, right, we'll, we'll we'll have a look, see what we can do. There was there wasn't anything psychological going on, you know, in in terms of like an emotional thing. The only thing in his background in terms of his childhood was he said he developed some funny problem with his neck when he was a child. Can't quite remember. said he saw a few consultants, and it just sort of went away. So we use, you know, the the cognitive neuroscience model that, you know, they've got this rogue representation of some sort of abnormal movement pattern in the neck. It's had gone away, the normal pattern had, had returned, and then later on, um, I think they, they end up they'd found um, a large lipoma in its trapezius that they thought, oh well, maybe it was that that's irritating. So they took it out, but it just got worse. So we use the the model sort of saying, so that, you know, sort of specific um, incidence then has just re-triggered this model you know this rogue model from the past and this is a problem so i used hypnosis with him just primarily for relaxation we did some mirror work while he was you know sort of nice and relaxed just to get him to a point where the pain had gone and then i transferred him over to, to physio and now he's back at work sort of full time he's driving he can walk back from the bar with two pints whereas he couldn't be because he had to support you know mm. what i mean so i i don't necessarily use psychological approaches. I just sort of see sometimes where I would fit in an MDT. And that might not be psychotherapy, it might be other sort of skills I might have that just prepares someone for the, you know, the, the main event, so to speak.
1: Okay. So I, I think I mean that's a lovely place to kind of maybe tie up because it just feels like as services evolve, you know, we're comfortable with MDTs for all sorts of things. Uh and and yet really it's the exception rather than the rule for functional neurological problems, isn't it? Which is a shame. Um, We always try and tie up this kind of education session podcast thing with like kind of advice to your younger self, the sort of, (laughs) heaven forbid I ever have to answer this question like, but, um, so like Rose, if you were, I mean, we, we were registrars together, but, um, if you had some kind of sage wisdom down the tunnel of time to your year one, year two kind of neurology registrar self, what would you what would you say to yourself? Something you now know that you wish you knew then.
0: <laughs> I've struggled with this one. Um, okay, um, what would I say to myself? Um, make sure you go somewhere with on-site childcare. <laughs> <And>, um, <laughs> Um, um, and just because it's a no-brainer don't expect it to happen <laughs> right um, yeah you you need to have time to make the case for what you think should happen um, and it might seem absolutely obvious um, to you and the last thing that you might have time to do is to do that but you do need to do that mm. you know advocating for um, what patients need is really important. Um, And I've struggled to do that, I think. Um, Yeah.
1: I think it's difficult. I think it's also difficult because, in my experience, understanding the way commissioners think and managers think and, you know, executive boards think, they're, they're all really different, have different kind of language and they deal in a different currency and the pressures on them are all different. And I think unless you understand that, yeah. you know you're pushing pushing against the wrong kind of you're not really pushing the right buttons half the time and as a clinician it's like a no-brainer but it, that's not the case for others is it it's, um,
0: it's just not their priority absolutely yeah.
1: yes yeah ja- jason have you got any sage wisdom for your younger self
2: um the only thing i sort of tell the the clinical psychology trainees when i do the functional um training is get interested in cognitive neuroscience because it's super interesting it will help explain to yourself how you work as well as helping this patient group and in about 10 years time if you're working in in mental health as well you're going to have to know this stuff because you know we're getting to the point where we're understanding lots of the mental health stuff from all this cognitive neuroscience work that's happening and i think the the thing that's forgotten about with all this you know all the great research that's happening at the minute in the, the functional world is it's not just telling us how these functional symptoms come about. It's also telling us about how we work as human beings, um, you know, with these sort of bodies and these brains and these minds and how it all sort of melts together and, you know, and most of the time works, but also doesn't. So I, I just can't understand anyone not being interested in this.
1: And I, I, yeah. yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I think I've learned a lot about myself from seeing patients with functional neurological problems, and actually, you know, your own functional things be they kind of because we all I think we all get them, maybe we don't recognize we them. We do. Yeah. You, you know, I think that's a way into to kind of describing stuff. And so I think you should embrace these things. Like you know, I had a I had a migraine aura one time in my life, it was completely fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was really exploring it. Uh, yeah. and I think you know, with the functional stuff, it's not pleasant at the time, but if you've ever had ex- a functional experience yourself you're like well actually that's i'm i'm the better for that coming out the other side of it well did did you know john
2: stone had a bit of a um a correspondence with with oliver Sacks about his um alleged functional um leg problem
0: leg weakness yes
2: (laughs)
1: ah well if it can happen to oliver (laughs) Sacks, then it can happen to anyone
2: but i just say one of the things because i always sort of struggle when 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 people sort of because you know we, we have these in psychology we have these sort of quite long discussions with with patients about the symptoms so that they feel as though they really sort of understand well understand it as well as, as as we do perhaps um and then they say well what do i tell my family and friends and sometimes i think it's about sort of being able to demonstrate so one of the things that i use to demonstrate and i think it's a it's a nice sort of teaching illustration uh for for people and, and i do this with the people on the course i think i did it with the uh, the junior doctors at your session, Archie, mm-hmm. because I get them to do, you know, the arm levitation thing, where you just press your arms against the the door for sixty seconds, and then just drop your arms and just let them do what they want, and your arms start to float up. And then I'll say say to the people, well, what what are your arms doing? And they say, they're floating. It's like, okay, so you're using a specific term about floating. And then I'll sort of say, what do your arms feel like? And they say, oh, they feel really light. So what's happening there is your body's doing something without a sense of agency. And your brain, your mind is trying to make sense of it by telling you that the laws of physics of the universe have completely changed and that your arms are now sort of lighter than they were 30 seconds ago and are actually floating. So, you know, and then you just get them to shake it off and and it just sort of cancels the signal and, and you're back to normal. But then what I'd say to them is, if that model was in your mind and that stuck, that is what it would be like to have a functional problem. You get this temporary model that that comes about and most of us most of the time it just sort of goes you know dissipates and we go back to the usual model but just what you know if you just think for a moment what would happen if that model stuck and you couldn't get out of it and then your arms just feel like they're floating up all the time or conversely a light lead that is what it would be like to develop a functional symptom Mm. so it's, it's just a nice sort of fun way I think sometimes to try to give an experiential um you know example of, of a functional symptom how they can come and go in everyday life but for you know this this group of people the model the, the rogue model sticks and then they can't get out of it that's really <laughs> nice i think yeah, uh, we, uh,
1: we maybe tie up there by just saying to anybody listening you know e- explore your own functional side uh, you know and and embrace it and understand it because uh you know, if you understand your own kind of experiences of things, actually, it is a way. It, it's a it gives you a better way to try and explain that and communicate that to patients, and that that's kind of part of our job is is patient care education. That's kind of the core of it all, really, isn't it? I shall end there, Roz It's, it's I mean, Jason. I see you a lot, so please don't take this the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> it is lovely to see you again, Ros. Well, wait to see you both. Yes, it's I been thank great. Thank
0: you, to see
1: you, Roz. And particularly good. on your particularly on your holiday
0: that's fine um yeah work intrudes into everything doesn't it and that's that's absolutely fine because this is really important i'd just like to make a plug for fnd hope which is the international patient association with there's loads of information on that website um mm, okay, and yeah. it's international and there's a functional neurological society you can consider joining and they're doing lectures on 4 p.m uh 4 p.m on a thursday at the moment because mm. they couldn't have a meeting um in in the USA Um, but yes and that's really going to push the research forward you'll see lots of things happening there's lots of clever people working on this around the world and it really is fascinating.
1: Great well I think that's it I shall definitely include that plug Roz and yeah we'll, we'll see if we can get some more of our students and junior doctors kind of interested and engaged with the with diagnosing and treating functional things then and that's a wrap my thanks to ros murray and jason price for their time and to you for listening this has been a tease neuro production and i mean that in a really loose sense um for the betterment of neurological education wherever you happen to be uh, you can get the podcast wherever you get podcasts uh, that much goes now probably without saying next week dr lou wiblin my good friend and colleague is speaking to dr kate Petherham, consultant neurologist in sunderland about multiple sclerosis join us then